I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. Free and uncorrupted communication. Thank you, Representative Capps. Before I introduce the speaker, I do want to call to your attention that uh, UCTV will carry this event uh, on Channel 21 on Wednesday night, October 16th at 9 o'clock. If you need a reminder of that, there are some flyers out front that you might pick up. It is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, who is extraordinarily appropriate selection for giving the inaugural lecture for the CAP Center. A distinguished historian and critic, Gary Wills is the author of more than 20 books on a wide-ranging set of topics. The titles of just some of his books give you an idea of the breadth of his interest. Politics and Catholic Freedom, Roman Culture, Jack Ruby, The Second Civil War, Inventing America, The Kennedy Imprisonment, Reagan's America, Under God, Lincoln at Gettysburg, Witches and Saints, excuse me, Witches and Jesuits. <laughs> I don't know what lies behind that. Witches and Jesuits. John Wayne's America, St. Augustine, Papal Sin, Venice, the Lion City, and most recently, Why I Am a Catholic. More than just the range of titles, his books are finely textured, combining intellectual rigor and graceful writing. He moves with ease between American culture and politics, ancient history, medieval philosophy, synthesizing information across disciplines and finding a new angle in which to present his point of view. For him, religion is not something set apart from other sectors of life, but instead is interwoven with art, architecture, literature, philosophy, politics, and the daily lives of the people. He finds subtle linkages among all these domains of experience. He has a critical eye toward religious institutions, yet writes about his own faith with passion and conviction as one who knows and appreciates the power of the religious. His Pulitzer Prize winning book, 
Lincoln at Gettysburg not only lifts Lincoln up as masterful in how he stirred the nation through his skillful use of words and symbols, it also demonstrates just how skillful Wills himself is in capturing what it is that binds all of us into a common identity and a sense of purpose as Americans. Aside from the Pulitzer Prize, he has received the Presidential Medal of the Endowment for the Humanities, the National Book Critics Award twice, the Merle Curti Award of the Organization of American Historians, the Wilbur Cross Medal, the John Hope Franklin Award, the Richard N. Current Award of the Lincoln Forum, and the Peabody Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. One of the nation's most prominent public intellectuals, he is a member of both the American Academy of Arts and Lectures and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This afternoon, Professor Wills will speak to us on the topic, Citizen Believers. The topic is very appropriate for an inaugural lecture for a center that seeks to honor and keep alive the legacy of Walter Capps. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Gary Wilkes. Walter Capps did before his wife and daughter, and very honored to be associated with this new program and this university. Thirty years ago, I came to this university as a regents professor and gave three lectures, which became a book named Witches and Jesuits. <laughs> Citizen Believers, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, in a recent talk to the University of Chicago's School of Divinity, distinguished two kinds of government, those whose authority is derived from above and those whose authority is derived from below. He was in the odd position of preferring the former while differing from it and disliking the latter while conforming to it. The issue that was involved was capital punishment. He is a Catholic who would like to follow Catholic teaching, but feels he cannot, because the new catechism issued by this current pope and the Vatican document Evangelium Vitae both condemn the death penalty. Instead of following that condemnation, he agrees with American law, reached democratically, though he thinks it unstable in its commitment. Things he lets us know should be the other way around. Authority should be on the side of death. The Catholic Church, he claims, has always supported capital punishment, including, though he does not add this, the capital incineration of witches and heretics. While democratic governments have recently rejected the death standard, Justice Scalia yearns back toward an old civilized consensus, which he describes this way. That consensus has been upset, I think, by the emergence of democracy. 
The modern view that the death penalty is immoral is centered in the West. That has little to do with the fact that the West has a Christian tradition and everything to do with the fact that the West is the home of democracy. Indeed, it seems to me that the more Christian a country is, the less likely it is to regard the death penalty as immoral. Abolition has taken its firmest hold in post-Christian Europe and has least support in the church-going United States. Close quote. So America has been saved from the ravages of democracy by the fact that it is still church-going. But how long can it hold out against democracy when so many other countries are falling prey to it? That prospect makes Scalia follow the American laws with misgiving, just as he departs from Vatican teaching with regret. The authority from above and that from below have switched signals on him. He knows why America is not running true to democratic form. It's all those churchgoers. But why has the Vatican betrayed him? That is not generally considered a hotbed of democracy. Yet it is precisely to democracy that Scalia attributes the desertion of the death penalty. He seems to think there is a crypto-trendiness at work in Rome, as when he refers sardonically to, quote, the latest hot-off-the-press version of the catechism, close quote. He appeals to an older tradition, quote, the current predominance of opposition to the death penalty is the legacy of Napoleon, Hegel, and Freud, rather than St. Paul and St. Augustine. He does not give a particular citation to St. Augustine, which is just as well, since he, in practical terms, always opposed the death penalty, saying it left sinners no time to repent. Even when Donatist heretics killed two of his own priests, he begged the authorities not to execute them. But about St. Paul, Justice Scalia is more specific. He cites the epistle to the Romans, quote, A ruler is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. St. Paul was saying that, remember, about the Roman authority, which would, under the emperor Nero, execute him. So that's pretty disinterested testimony. But we should remember that Paul generally advised Christians to conform to the age because it was about to end. And therefore, it was feckless to do much about it. Subjects obey your rulers. He did say that. But he also said, slaves obey your masters. And I doubt that Mr. Scalia believes that that writ still runs. The justice does deserve praise for reminding us that religious views matter in politics. But he probably goes too far when he says that if his religion really required him to oppose capital punishment, the results would be dire. The nation would undergo the severe trauma of losing his service because he would have to resign. The country would also lose other, though perhaps less valuable, assets. Quote, I do not think it would be a good thing if American Catholics running for legislative office had to oppose the death penalty. Most of them would not be elected. If American Catholics running for governors had to promise commutation of all death sentences, most of them would never reach the governor's mansion. If American Catholics were ineligible to go on the bench in all jurisdictions imposing the death penalty, 
or if American Catholics were subject to recusal when called for jury duty in capital cases. Now, I do not understand why the justice thinks he would have to resign if he found that the Vatican teaching on capital punishment is binding. It is the taking of life, and he admits that Vatican teaching is binding on him for something else that it considers the taking of life, abortion. And he doesn't recuse himself from any of the abortion cases, as he said he would have to do for the capital punishment cases if uh, he agreed with the Vatican. So it seems to me he's inventing a kind of pseudo-problem for himself. Uh, legalized abortion is as much the law of the land as legalized capital punishment. I'm sure he must think that an aberration of democracy. Yet he says he can adjudicate on the basis of laws he disagrees with. So the psychodrama of that whole speech seems a little beside the point. What, for that matter, if Americans should now vote to abolish capital punishment? That would be the triumph of Western democracy that Scalia fears. But if religious authority would have made him leave the bench if he accepted its condemnation of the death penalty, why would he not be compelled to the same action if he disagreed with the condemnation of the death penalty by his government? So Justice Scalia seems confused, though he does raise an interesting series of questions. Should we prefer a government whose authority is derived from above? For believers like him, it would simplify things. It would mean that one agreed as a subject citizen, not a subject believer, not a citizen believer, and one's duty would be the same whether to the government or to God because they would flow down through the same channel. The duty with regard to the state would be the mandate from God, not to how that mandate is used. The Roman emperor, said Paul, wields God's sword, even if he cuts off the wrong head now and then. This is the attitude of some of my fellow Catholics to the Pope. My Catholic friends tell me that I should obey him not because of what he says, but because of who he is, Christ's representative on earth. This was also the rationale for the divine right kings. The problem, of course, is that the divine right rulers had to have subjects who were all of the same religion, or they would not recognize the single authority of God and the state. Atheists and others would not conceive of their political and religious duties as coalescing. That is why Democrats prefer the other situation, with authority derived less divinely from below. That just confuses things, says Scalia. Quote, it is much more difficult to see the hand of God, or any higher moral authority, behind the fools and rogues, as the losers would have it, whom we elect to do our own will. That our own will is what disturbs Scalia. If the state's authority goes no further than what the government governed consent to, then even America might sink so far into democracy as to rescind capital punishment laws, flouting St. Paul and St. Paul's interpreter. Quoting uh, Justice Scalia again, the mistaken tendency to believe that a democratic government, being nothing more than the composite will of its individual citizens, has no more moral authority than they do as individuals, has adverse effects in other areas than capital punishment. It fosters civil disobedience, for instance, which proceeds on the assumption that what the individual citizen considers an unjust law, 
even if it does not compel him to act unjustly, need not be obeyed. St. Paul would not agree. Close quote. Grant Justice Scalia this. The situation of the citizen believer is more complicated than that of the subject believer. It is even more complicated, I think, than he seems to allow. He talks of the individual citizen disagreeing with a law he or she considers unjust. But what if the individual is speaking not for himself or herself, but for religious authority? That inverts the order Scalia seems to assume, which unites religious authority and the state, both commanding from above. This situation that I'm describing marshals religion from below to strike up at government. In this contest, Scalia implies that the dissident believer should just opt out of the situation, as he would resign his office if he had to obey the Pope on capital punishment. You could regret the democratic basis that had made this necessary, but without engaging in anything so reprehensible as civil disobedience. This is in accord with what John Kennedy said in his 1960 campaign for president, that if his religion interfered with any part of his constitutional duty as president, he would resign. But what if the believer feels obliged to do more than to opt out, feels obliged to oppose the state actively, not out of his or her single authority, but from that of fellow believers and the religious authority they jointly acknowledge. So it is not the self-constituted authority of the individual that the state has to fear as a power from below, but the power of individuals joined to others in religious conviction. That is why, in American history, the problem spots have been where Quakers or Mormons or Amish or Jehovah's Witnesses have refused to give up religious practices proscribed by the laws of democracy. Catholics and evangelicals should be added to this list. Justice Scalia does not advert to the fact, but the Vatican has also condemned the production and maintenance of nuclear weapons. Some take this seriously enough to follow Philip Berrigan into defense installations and do physical damage to warheads. Others have tried to withhold an amount of their taxes proportioned to the nation's outlay on nukes. Some Catholics also oppose abortion, though not usually as violently as evangelicals, some of whom shoot abortion-performing doctors. This is where religious certitude poses the worst kind of test for a pluralist state. If you truly believe that abortion is murder being committed on a whole-scale basis, you s seem bound to interfere much as Germans would have been found to interfere with the Holocaust. What authority has a government of rogues and fools, to quote the justice, electing each other from their own tainted pool to pit against a searing conviction like that? This problem helps us to see why the citizen believer is such a recent phenomenon in history, why the secular state is such a novelty. Every government before ours had some kind of official religious sanction. That was as true of democratic Athens as of Republican Venice and of all the other governments in between. A government without such a base, it was felt, would be too flimsy to stand up to religious beliefs outside the official ambit. Throughout history, religious challenges were crushed by the religion already in place. America was the first to take the high risk of having no religion in place 
to control other religious passions. Nothing except that risky step was new in our Constitution, either in theory or in practice. Bicameralism, tripartite government, the independent judiciary, federalism, they had all been analyzed and tried somewhere or other. Only separation of church and state was brand new. It is so novel that many people even now cannot believe that Madison really meant it when he said that government should have no cognizance at all of religion. He even said that religious ministers should not list their profession on the federal census forms, since that's none of the government's business. There have been constant attempts in America to redivinize the state, to make religious as well as political authority flow down from above. Evangelicals tell us that a godless state will not receive God's protection. The state must conduct official prayers, or censor books, or outlaw condoms, or prosecute abortion. As Justice Scalia would put it, we should give back to the government St. Paul's sword. Milder redivinizers try to invent a civil religion to give the state something beyond a purely secular mandate. One religious leader says that the public square without some kind of altar is a naked public square. In this view, the citizen believer is a contradiction in terms, since the believer must be subject to some religious authority. And we have no citizen rights against God. We cannot elect him or fail to. The assumption, therefore, has been that religion and government must stand together since each is too vulnerable on its own. A religion without government support sinks into a sect. A government without religious support is tossed in the winds of popular whim. Some call this accountability to the popular whim, uh, the, eliciting the consent of the governed. Others say it is being chaotic, with no more real authority than the latest Gallup or Zogby poll. A government that can kill us for disobeying it, that can make us go to war, that can take away property, that can regulate the raising of one's children, that can conscript one's time or talent, must have some more solid basis for these impositions than overlapping plebiscites. So the claim, after all, uh, the government claims, after all, to be passing just laws, adjudicating human rights, determining what is due to each of its citizens. Political theorists from Plato on have claimed that the only, only the just state can be legitimate, can make proper demands on us. If you do not grant that the state is acting, if only for the most part, justly, you are outside its claims, and your fellow citizens can question your loyalty, can even demand that you love it or leave it. Others, like the actor Alec Baldwin, volunteer to leave, if the polity does anything so unlovable as installing George W. Bush in the presidency. But do we actually live by those standards of Plato and political science? We all put up with presidents we consider a disaster and pay taxes that are used for causes we deplore and express contempt for our own representatives. Does that make government fall apart? And if it does not, why doesn't it? Well, for one thing, our commitment to the nation is not the same as commitment to its government. We can love the former and despise the latter. 
and conform to what we despise out of regard for what we love. People, even Alec Baldwin, do not really leave the country when disappointed by an election. And the reason they stay has little to do with the government. Patriotism is not an ideological test. Most people, if they actually left the country for ideological reasons, would soon find themselves in the position of a friend of Studs Terkel, who married a much younger woman. The marriage did not work, he later told Studs. Why? She didn't know the songs. <laughs> the songs that had been woven into his life experience were unknown to her. All the private references, the shaping memories, the intense personal symbols that made him what it was and which were something that she could never know. In fact, we stay with each other as a nation because we know one another's songs. Patriotism is not a loyalty oath to the authorities. It is a solidarity with one's fellows. By and large, we share communicative signals, forms of schooling, formal and informal, an inclusive popular culture, a gallery of shared heroes, sets of sports loyalties, overlapping histories, landscapes, climates, a dense weave of common sympathies, antipathies, sentiments, revulsions. We are all in one boat, even when we spend our time in it griping about the government. Even that forms a bond. Patriotism, I repeat, is not an ideological test. During the 1978 presidential campaign, George Herbert Walker Bush was asked what he, 1976, what he was asked while he was waiting to be rescued after being shot out of the air by the Japanese during World War II. He said he thought about the separation of church and state. Well, of course. <laughs> what, what would anyone contemplate while bobbing about in the Pacific? In that same war, there was a good deal of satire about propaganda claims that our boys were fighting for mom's apple pie. That was simplistic, if not infantile, but I would bet there was a better chance of thinking about things like that than about the four freedoms or church and state relations. Probably, in fact, they were thinking more about some other mom's apple dumpling of a daughter. Such ties seem rather trivial when made to bear the weight of communal unity over against a government's tainted justice. In fact, the popular sentiments are often not only trivial, but tainted themselves. The ties and traditions can keep alive racial prejudice, gender stereotyping, class antagonism. Violence, we learned in the 60s, is American as cherry pie. Running people out of town on a rail, said the political philosopher Wilmore Kendall, was a well-established American tradition. So was lynching. Do such things offer a better ground for patriotism than does any, even a failed, ideology of just government? One can conclude that government, no matter how bad, is better than popular sentiment and prejudice. It would be extremely hard, indeed, to fashion a political theory out of Mam's apple pieism. So, let's try to fashion one. The problem is this. How put together a set of abstract claims of justice from above with a set of compromised bonds from below in such a way that they compensate for or even support each other? 
Can we build a structure out of such flimsily tainted or trivial material? Only one great thinker that I know of has tried to do that. I want to take a brief look at the way he did it. I do this not to promote his own theology, but to notice how it can help us rationalize our own non-theoretical hunches about what a country and a government can do and ought to do. In that sense, this is a quick detour through esoteric theology to circle back to our own common sense. St. Augustine lived in the 5th century under a Christian emperor. We might expect him, therefore, and Justice Scalia apparently does expect him, to say that a Christian emperor is wielding God's sword put in his hand by St. Paul. But Augustine was too aware that all temporal things, including the temporal authority even of church rulers, whom he criticized often, much more of temporal rulers, however Christian, is a matter of original sin. We all live in a temporal dispensation that is poisoned by original sin. And therefore, the Christian empire was not the city of God. What's more, its citizens could not be sorted out into good subjects, Christians, and bad subjects, heretics and infidels. Augustine pointed out that he was once a Manichaean, then a skeptic, then a philosophical materialist, then a Neoplatonic idealist, and only finally a Christian. Looking at others, caught at various stages of their own spiritual journeys, he recommended a holy agnosticism about the soul of any one man or woman. Only God knows what journey they are taking toward him or away from him. Meanwhile, we must jostle along together with one another, knowing very little about each other, living with our own past and future, like the wheat and the chaff that can only be winnowed at the end of time. That was his favorite image of the human community on earth. Those were the reflections that led Augustine to his boldest stroke in political philosophy. A thing as novel in theory as our separation of church and state is in political practice. He denied the whole classical tradition that a state is founded on justice. Only the city of God can make that claim. Earthly governments are made up of people whose ultimate condition is not subsumable under a common view of what justice is. So Augustine denied the validity of his favorite philosopher's definition of a nation. Cicero said, a people is a human gathering united by agreement on what is just and by a community of interests. Augustine said, that's not true. The definition should run this way. A people is a gathering of many rational beings united by a joint participation in whatever things they love. Whatever our ultimate fate and loyalty, whatever our deepest religious beliefs, we can be one people by sharing all the concrete good things of our life. Since the popular tradition about Augustine says that he was a pessimist taking a very dark view of everything, it may surprise people that he stresses love for shared good things. But he thought that the only thing any of us could claim was our own sin. Everything else came from God and was good as it came from his hands and as he pronounced when he made it. He is rhapsodic when he looks at the wonders of creation, not only at sky and sea and mountain, 
but lowly things like insects and worms and intestines. I like to quote his little description of the worm because it is typical of many similar celebrations of anything that exists. He said, I could descant in all candor on the glories of the worm when I look at its iridescence, its perfect corporeal rotundity, its interaction of end with middle, middle with end, each contributing toward a thrust to oneness in this lowest of things, so that there is no part of it which does not answer to another part harmoniously. And what of the principle of life effervescing its melodious order through that body, its rhythmic activation of the whole, its quest for that which serves its life, its triumph over or revulsion from what threatens it, its reference of all this to a normative center of self-preservation, bearing a witness more striking than the body's own to the creative unity that upholds all things in nature. So, the shared good things of creation include not only worms, but family, friends, common cultural interests, common products of the imagination. And he says it is our attachment to these things that unites us, in fact, even when we differ in serious ways, to preserve a peace that will preserve those good things. What he called the peace of Babylon. He said that the peace of Babylon, not the city of God, is something that can be shared by the godly and the ungodly, the wheat and the chaff, in this mid-journey that we are all engaged on, where we have to support each other in many ways as we disagree with each other. I won't go at the moment into all the difficulties Augustine had in applying this brilliant new concept to the circumstances of the Roman Empire. Most people begin with those difficulties and never reach the theory that he was formulating. And in fact, his theory should work best in a pluralistic society like our own, whose actual practices it gives a rationale for. What advantages does this approach offer to citizen believers? I think there are five. It's realistic, it's concrete, it's positive, it's inclusive, and it's love-centered. It's realistic because it does not make unfulfillable demands on the state that it be perfectly just to have a claim on us. We lower our expectations of the government while heightening our appreciation of the things it holds together. We do not expect to find the city of God descended on our land, and we do not withhold allegiance to a government until it becomes the city of God. This does not mean that we give up on justice as important to the state, to, to life, to everything. We can hardly share the good things we treasure if there is not some protector of property, some adjudicator of rights, some respected rallying point for our joint efforts. Such a government is one of the good things we hold in common. Augustine says that even a robber gang demands justice in the division of its spoils. But the goal we work for is practical, not ideological. Does the state actually protect things more if we can get it to do this or to do that? This does not take away the struggle for justice. It just gives a different and less ideal set of motives for it. This attitude is the polar opposite of the one that says, fiat justitia, ruat caelum, do justice though the heavens fall. It says, do the kind of justice that keeps the heavens from falling. It does not give up on justice, but it does not give the state a monopoly on justice either. It allows for many levels of moral authority, complementary and not merely competing. Second, this approach is concrete. The Augustinian norm 
is not merely passive. If the state is destroying rather than protecting most of the good things, it must be opposed. Tyrannicide is permissible under extreme conditions in any system. But the test must not be, is the tyrant evil? But would replacing him or her actually improve our grasp on the good things we most cherish? Even in classical theory, tyrannicide was justifiable only if it had, first, a good chance of succeeding, and second, a good chance of replacing the tyranny with a better system. Sheer hatred for an evil man is not a sufficient justification. That can lead to a descent into chaos worse than the tyranny itself, a chaos where all good things are lost for everyone. Third, the approach is positive. Our government is built, in fact, on compromise. The Constitution was built on layer after layer of compromise, and all regimes based on it since have been. That is the complaint of those who want a pure and just system or none at all. These views of compromise take it as an evil, as a sacrifice of good, as a bargaining way of the pure position. Augustine looks at the positive good things being preserved by the compromises. This makes one less apologetic about compromise and more emphatic about the good that it can accomplish. Fourth, the approach is inclusive, not exclusive. It looks not to making everyone toe the same mark, meet an ideal test of loyalty or orthodoxy or godliness. It wants to increase the number of people sharing the good things as a way of protecting them from extremists who would throw them away to pursue utopian projects. It does not say love it or leave it. It says love it and stay and improve it. Because this is an inclusive system, it must be a moderate one. Last, even more specifically, it is built on the social amities, on love, not primarily on rights. You must grant me my rights, which are in competition with yours, or I can do no business with you. Once again, this does not mean that one sacrifices human rights, which are not only protective of social good, like justice itself, but a social good in themselves. Nonetheless, the aim should be not to vindicate my own maximum individual claims, but to see how we can be as protective of shared goods, which include rights, but are not at the mercy of the utmost individual assertion. John Ruskin said that societies are in fact built on social affections, not on the iron demands of right. Now, how might such an attitude affect the conduct of citizen believers today? Well, let me take a seemingly intractable demand made by those who think abortion is murder. Some who want justice in that regard are even willing to commit a miniature version of tyrannicide, killing the physician perpetrators of the murder and calling that defense of the lives that are being taken away. Now, most opponents of abortion do not go that far, and we should ask why. They are unwilling to rend the social fabric with a demand that will actually reduce their chance of affecting the community's attitude. What limits them is a partial hunch that accords with the Augustinian norm. While not doing things ourselves that offend our conscience, we often have to put up with actions by others that we consider immoral. Many considered the Vietnam War immoral. It was right to voice that view, to protest against the war. I went to jail twice in the effort. 
to use all the means of suasion possible. But blowing up buildings, killing fellow citizens, assassinating the president, these are not ways to preserve the peace of Babylon, which Augustine considered a legitimate duty even in morally compromised situations. What goods are being preserved, he would have us ask, by not making the imperial moral claim? Thomas Aquinas addressed this when he opposed the practice of forcibly adopting Jewish or infidel children. That was seen by its practitioners in a way not far from the mind of those trying to force an end to abortion. The anti-abortionists say they are saving lives. The people who forcibly baptized said they were saving lives from going to hell. But Thomas said that other goods should not be sacrificed even to the goal of saving souls. What other goods was he thinking of? Well, for one, the responsibility of parents for their own children. Taking a Jewish child from its parents, baptizing it, tears the social fabric by which families hold together and cherish their own offspring, a value that we all want for ourselves and for others that we respect. The forcible obstruction of abortion sacrifices the good of community consensus over a woman's control of her body. This is not an absolute any more than the parent's right to a child's upbringing in Thomas's time was an absolute, but it is a good, however limited, that the consensus is not willing to sacrifice to one group's imperial moral claim. Therefore, to save the fetus against the moral judgment of the majority is to endanger many communal goods. We should, in the name of comity, give anti-abortionists every opportunity to persuade people, including many forms of protest short of violence. Those means, after all, were used by feminists, civil rights activists, and others to persuade the community that its former consensus was wrong, and it was successful in persuading the community over time. We should also remember that the Vatican thinks that the evil of abortion is not a matter of revelation, of scripture, of religion in strict sense, but of natural law. So natural reason, given minimal goodwill, should be able to reach this truth if it is one. That is, not only Catholics, but all human beings should come to the right conclusion on the matter. Making that argument becomes more difficult, not less, if passions muddy the water by an introduction of violence or religious dogmatism into the process. We must try to respect and include the moral sensitivities of those opposed to abortion as they should try to respect and address the natural uh, reason that other people are invoking in their decisions. This would not mean necessarily deserting their own certitudes but it might make them aware that the peace of Babylon should be preserved precisely to make further mutual enlightenment on this subject possible. I end where I began, with the quandary of Antonin Scalia. If he accepted the Vatican's attempted ban on executions, would he have to resign from the bench? Alas, no. <laughs> He is responsible as a judge, not for doing absolute justice, as he or his priests conceive it, but to preserving legal protection for all our other goods, even if that means that he is upholding the peace of Babylon rather than the city of God. He can try to persuade in his capacity as citizen, as social leader, but as a judge, he must uphold the law agreed to by the community, even though it was a democratic community, even though its authority came from below. 
out of the social affections that bind us to each other and to many of the good things we hold in common. With regard to the death penalty, therefore, he would not be obliged to love it or leave the bench. He could hate it and yet love the goods preserved by preservation of the law. Those who use the slogan, love it or leave it, say that any criticism of the country must show hatred for it. They cannot, in fact, have known many wives. They are perfectly able to love and criticize. Our motto should be, love and improve, criticize and stay. One of the ways we can improve the country we hold in common is not only to criticize it ourselves, but to encourage and learn from others' criticism. The state is not perfectly just. There are many political virtues, cunning, integrity, caution, but the greatest of all, even in politics, is love. This is not mushy sentiment, but common sense. When we say we love our country, we're not talking about the four freedoms. We're not talking about separation of church and state, but, but about those things that are more humble and close to us, even way off at the end, mom's apple pie. Now, I have not worked out all the implications of this approach to citizen belief, though I think it could have important implications for religious pluralism, for free speech, for tolerance, for concord, for individual rights, for moral authority. To pursue those lines of thought seems to me a promising project. I hope some will do that in this new center and make better sense of it than I have. The point, after all, is to recognize that we are all in this together. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Wills, for a very provocative lecture. Professor Wills has agreed to accept a few questions from the floor. We're not going to have an extensive time for this, but we will accept a few. So uh, I will recognize you, and we do have some microphones. I see one here, and we have two. Uh, so uh, do speak into the microphone, and... We'll go from there. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Um, I first encountered your writing when I was a graduate student. I was uh, living abroad for about two and a half years in the, uh, the late 1970s, and I wanted to become familiar with something about American culture again before I came back. And uh, my first uh, entree into this was um, the Kennedy imp uh, imprisonment book. But then on, on uh, Sidewalk, a used book uh, display in Cairo, I came across your book, uh, Nixon Agonistes. And there's one part of that that uh, I found to be unforgettable for me. Uh, this is obviously just after the time of the, uh, the ending of the Vietnam War. And uh, at this time in 1980, when I read it, it was when we were in the middle of the hostage crisis uh, with Iran. And you have a passage in there in which you refer to the uh, val values of President Woodrow Wilson in terms of self-determination of nations, and at the same time, how those values seem to be very much held up to question in light of his uh, campaign for war in Mexico. And you drew a parallel between that and the U.S. involvement in Vietnam at the time. And you have this very, um, uh, you know, I think very strong uh, passage in here, which I'd like to read, if I may, it's a short one. Uh, 
But I'd like to uh, ask for your response to this in light of developments that are occurring in our country today. It says that uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson was ready to uh, do Mex the Mexicans uh, a service uh, year after discouraging year with the same service that was being done with the Vietnamese, preaching democracy with well-meant napalm, instructing as we obliterate children with our bombs. We believe we can literally kill them with kindness or love, um, moving our guns forward in a seizure of uh, demented charity. It is when America is in her most altruistic mood that other nations better get behind their bunkers. Now, I'm a, I'm a Catholic and also faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and a Catholic of, I think, deep moral conscience. And I've been very concerned about developments that are occurring in our country at the present time, lead, being led by a president who I think thinks he has the sword of God in his hand, wants to engage in tyrannicide, it seems to me, and has, uh, with all due respect to Representative Capps, cajoled our Congress into surrendering basic elements of our civil rights through a Patriot, Patriot Act. And, and so, I'll get to it in just a second. And is now uh, on the verge of having Congress um, declare a, a resolution that may well lead to a very bloody uh, conflict for us. So uh, my basic question is, what, would you reassess that statement you made about the U.S. and Vietnam in light of these current events and give us citizen believers uh, a, a, something to think about in relationship to the current situation our country is in on an international uh, scale? Well, I still agree with what I said then. Uh, and by the way, uh, Justice Scalia has not much adverted to the fact that the Vatican was against the Gulf War and, and is against the impending war. Uh, the Vatican's position is very Augustinian on war, that it's only justified out of self-defense, real self-defense. And of course, everybody pleads self-defense. You know, the people who shoot abortion doctors say this is self-defense for the baby that the doctor would kill, the babies. Uh, and we claim that it was self-defense in Vietnam. The difference is that if you, in Vietnam, the, the argument is that if we don't stop it here, it'll, it'll spread through Asia, and China will advance and take us over. Uh, of course, that disappeared uh, during the Vietnam War when our relations with China were reopened, but the Vietnam went on on its own, log on its own accord after its own rationale was taken away. And now we know why from what we've found out from the tapes of President Johnson and others, that uh, he thought we, we couldn't get out, we couldn't win, we couldn't get out because we'd lose face. So we had to keep killing people not to lose face. Uh, the preemptive strike argument is that if we wait, someday, somewhere, they'll do us in. The problem with that is that that's a hypothetical series of deaths. It's real deaths that we're inflicting before the hypothesis. Uh, and that's not an argument in self-defense, it seems to me, that's valid. Uh, you can say, there's a crazy person in our neighbor neighborhood, and he's quite unpredictable. Uh, he might kill somebody, he might kill me, so I better go kill him. Uh, that's a real hypothetical, but the real death is more real than the hypothetical. Uh, 
So I think that, first of all, the presumption should always be against war. Uh, the argument for war has to be overwhelming to be valid at all because of the cruel costs of war. It always does more than it was intended to do. It always kills more. It always kills more innocent people. It always does worse things to one's own country. Uh, all of the extensions of governmental power in our history have come about because of war. So Republicans of all people who are always saying they're against the accretion of power to the government should be against war because that's the surest and almost the only thing that really accretes power to the government and always has. Uh, so I would recommend that Justice Scalia stop worrying about what the Pope has to say about capital punishment and start worrying about what he has to say about war. Yes, sir. Uh, there's a microphone coming. I'm, I'm curious what you attribute the corruption of the Catholic Church to, or is there a major single reason? I didn't get the question. I'm sorry, the corruption of, of the priesthood of the Catholic Church. Uh, well, that's a big topic. Um, there, are, there are several issues involved. First of all, there are the priests who molest children. That's a, a terrible thing for anything, anyone to do, but much more terrible for somebody who is charged to take care of the members of the mystical body of Christ who molest them. Uh, it's not a defense to say that people who are care guides to very young people tend to have this happen, whether they're scoutmasters or sports coaches or boarding school teachers. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the number of priests involved, several hundred, is in proportion not terribly high with 45,000 priests in America. But the number of victims is very high because these priests were allowed to go on decade after decade, running up totals of sometimes 70 and 80 victims per man. So the real problem is the bishops who allowed this to happen. Uh, and the anger of Catholics is directed primarily at them, as it should be. The Zogby National Poll of Catholics asked how many Catholics think the bishops who did that should have been disciplined by the Pope, 96% said that. That means young and old, left and right, lay and clerical, that's as close to unanimity as you get. And yet, they're not being punished. Uh, the Pope apologized in Canada for the priests who did this, said nothing about the bishops who are the ones who are at real fault. Uh, so the corruption, whatever its causes, that's too big a question. The, secular, the, uh, the clerical hierarchical uh, mentality uh, is in its most concrete form now papal. He appointed these men. He's protected them. His Vatican, his curia, has issued statement after statement saying they should not give in 
to secular authority. Uh, blaming America sensationalistic press. One cardinal of the Curia, one of the Vatican congregations, said that the persecution of cardinal law ranks with the persecutions of communists and fascist regimes. Who's persecuting him? Catholic prosecutors, Catholic lawyers, Catholic parents, Catholic victims, Catholic judges. Uh, you know, are they all communists and fascists? Who's called for Cardinal Law's resignation or removal? Bill Buckley, Bill O'Reilly, Patrick Buchanan, Bill Bennett, not, not radicals. Uh, the current most horrendous thing is that we have a pope who appointed these bishops and will not punish a single one. If we have it. Went up there on the balcony. Yes, sir. Did everyone hear that? Uh, Gore Vidal said there's something about monotheism that leads to destruction of democracy. Uh, Christopher Hitchens put it even more vividly, I think. He said there's only one axis of evil, the three monotheistic religions. <laughs> uh, well, they're doing a lot of harm, all right, right now. And uh, there's no denying that religion has a terrible history of doing terrible things. Lucretius put it, tantum religio potuit suadere malorum. So suasive is religion to our bane. Uh, well, it is. It's a dangerous thing. It's like sex. It's like love. It's like the family. They're all dangerous. They all tear lives apart. And we can't do without any of them. I want to thank all of you for being here and for your provocative questions. And once again, let's thank Gary Wills for his lecture. <laughs>